Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 32, 33, 34, and 35 of The Da Vinci Code. And where we left off, I don't really remember where we left off. To be honest with you, I banked up a bunch of eps before I went overseas. And then I went to Paris. I didn't swing by the Saint-Sulpice. You know, I thought about it. Me and my friend were like, should we go to the Saint-Sulpice? And then we said, nah. Even if it is the most interesting and eccentric building in all of Paris, we skipped it. So I can't quite remember exactly what happened. All I really remember is we're out of the Louvre and Sister Sangerine of the Saint-Sulpice, she's kaput. She's dead. She's donezo. She's rest in peace, baby mama. So we start chapter 32 and they're escaping. The security alarm of the Denon wings just going off and disrupting all of the pigeons in the nearby Tuileries gardens. Just, okay. The pigeons were having a lovely night and then someone stole a bit of artwork or something from the Louvre and then all of a sudden they've got to relocate. Those poor pigeons. And they're running across the plaza to Sophie's car. And Langdon can hear the sirens from the police in the distance. Why there's no cops on board or security staff? Like, I know they just went to go and follow that bar of soap that got thrown out the window, but you wouldn't have left someone behind, you know, just to protect the plaza of the Louvre. Even if there wasn't a robbery or a murder, maybe the plaza of the Louvre would be a little bit more guarded than this, but they're just waltzing across the plaza and no one's stopping them. And Sophie, she left her car in the middle of the plaza as well. Apparently apparently it's a parking zone. I, I don't know what to tell you. And she's got one of those little dumb two-seater cars. I mean, is there anything more embarrassing than a two-seater car? Like, no offense to people out there with two-seaters that are like the fancy two-seaters, but these are those little tiny little European ones. And it's like, ugh. It's like everyone thinks, you know, like tiny homes are cool in theory, but would you want to live in one? Nah. And do I want to be driving around in a tiny little two-seater car? No, I don't. And Langdon, he's thinking the way I'm thinking. And he actually says, she's kidding, right? In italics, so you know, that's what he's thinking. The vehicle was easily the smallest car Langdon had ever seen. Okay, here's the hyperbole again. Like he's never seen these cars before. Never. Oh, he's never seen a car that small. Like, and Sophie, she goes, it's a smart car. Like he didn't actually ask or anything. She's just like, oh, it's the Da Vinci Code. So I've got to give you an explanation of everything. She goes, it's a smart car. A hundred kilometers to the liter. And you're not talking Langdon's language. He's probably thinking, what the fuck's a kilometer? And <laughs> Dan Brown also like has to call it smart car. Like, I guess that's the brand name of the car. He's got to call it smart car in every single sentence. He can't just say the car they drove. It's got to be, they drove the smart car. And sometimes it's like smart car, all one word. Other times it's smart dash car. There's no consistency in the smart caring. The only thing that is consistent is that he'll refer to it as a smart car. So he gets in the passenger seat and Sophie guns the smart car up over the curb and she's got to just drive out of the plaza now. And for an instant, she sort of seemed to consider taking a shortcut across the rotary at the Carousel de Louvre by going straight through a hedge. But Langdon's like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Because around those hedges, behind that hedge, There's a chasm. It's the pyramid in Versailles. You know, 
sidebar that for later. And he's like, you can't, you can't just drive through this hedge as a shortcut, Sophie. And I don't think she was like, what, how much time is that going to save her? Five seconds. And so far narrowly you've avoided getting anyone's attention. So why would you be so indiscreet as to drive through a hedge and like crash through the pyramid in Versailles as just like a shortcut to save you five seconds? But Langdon, he's like, don't do it. (laughs) Of course she's not doing it. And so she decides on the more conventional route. She just circled properly until the exit. And then she goes onto the northbound lane, accelerating towards Rue de Rivioli. Okay. All right. This Dan Brown, he gives more directions than my iPhone, my Siri, when I've asked Siri to give me directions to somewhere. Siri's just like, yeah, go straight. And then eventually they'll be like, oh, through the, through the roundabout, take the third exit. And I have to, I have to beg for anything more specific. Maybe Siri needs that Dan Brown setting so we can get some actual proper directions. So then the smart car (laughs) engine whines in protest as Sophie urged it faster away from the Louvre. And then ahead of them, a traffic light goes red and Sophie's like, ah, damn it. Damn it all to heck. Who could have seen this coming? And it's like, yeah, traffic lights go red. Like, calm down. But she doesn't want to wait at the light. So she turns left instead. And now they're shooting out onto the Champs-Élysées. And Langdon, he looks around. You know, he, he turns his body in the smart car to look out the window and he can see that the police don't seem to be chasing them. So that's good. And he's like, whew, dodged a bullet there. <laughs> it says his heartbeat finally slowing. Langdon turned back around. Like, y- you're not out of the woods yet, bud. He's like, oh, we dodged him. There goes that police investigation. Hey, Paris DCPJ, don't worry about little old me anymore. I'm out of the woods. But Sophie, she's still stressed. She's just staring down the thoroughfare of the Champs-Élysées. And we all know what the Champs-Élysées is, right? Like it's the most famous street in Paris. Kind of a big deal. Been around for hundreds of years. Like we get it. Uh, But apparently we don't. I think Dan Brown's writing this for, you know, a certain audience of not very well-traveled people. Let's just say that. He says the Champs-Élysées, the two mile stretch of posh storefronts that was often called the Fifth Avenue of Paris. Is it often called that? Or is it just called the Champs-Élysées? I think people just call it the Champs. No one's calling it the Fifth Avenue of Paris. You know, as I said, I was just in Paris and no one asked me for directions being like, oh, hi, sorry. Can you point me in the direction of the Fifth Avenue of Paris? No, we don't need an Americanized version of everything. Like we can, we can figure things out, Dan. And also a two mile stretch of posh storefronts. I'm here to tell you that some of those shops, they're not that posh. I went into a Zara on the Champs-Élysées and it was the biggest little animal pit I've ever seen. Oh, oh, people were just, it was madness. People were disgusting. COVID doesn't exist because it was just wall to wall human flesh of everyone coughing and sneezing all over each other, just barging their way through like garments being thrown about and all of the clothes were shit. Let me just tell you that right now. It was bloody bedlam in there. It were posh storefronts, my foot. But Langdon, he's like, oh, okay. We're about a mile away from the embassy. And so he just like settles into the ride. He's like, oh, that's it. Everything's tied up in a neat little package. And he's thinking about how smart Sophie was to figure out that So Dark the Con of Man was an anagram of Madonna of the Rocks. And he's like, wow, Sonia, so brilliant. Madonna of the Rocks, another fitting link in the evening's chain of interconnected symbolism. And yet Robert Langdon, he's just thinking about like, oh, you know, that Da Vinci. He was such a scamp when he painted Madonna of the Rocks. He's like, oh, yep, this all points to Sonier and his fondness for the dark and mischievous side of Da Vinci. And it's like, no, Sonier's pointing to something a bit larger than just an appreciation of Da Vinci. And I, I don't think Langdon's figured that out yet. So apparently some church asked Da Vinci to paint this Madonna painting. And Madonna meaning um, the Virgin Mary, not actual Madonna. Like he didn't paint someone voguing or anything. Um, and... They wanted like the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist and the angel Uriel and the baby Jesus. They wanted them all in like certain places. But when he painted it, he painted it with explosive and disturbing details. Like, I don't know about that, but sure. Apparently what was so fucking explosive was that instead of Jesus blessing John, it was baby John who was blessing Jesus and Jesus was submitting to his authority. Although I, I don't know why that's so wild. Isn't John the guy that baptized him. So, you know, like maybe it's a reference of that, but no, they're like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Baby John's blessing, baby Jesus. 
everything's topsy-turvy, the world's turned upside down. And the church were like, we can't have this, that's crazy. Oh, that's fucking crazy. And apparently Mary's hands look like talons and like she's holding up an invisible head. And it's like, okay, well, well, she's not holding up an invisible head. So she's just got weird fingers. And then the angel was making a cutting gesture with his hand as if slicing the neck of the invisible head gripped by Mary's claw-like hand. Okay, but, but there's no head. She's not holding an invisible head. So, so the angel's not slicing anyone's head off. What the? But the church were like, nah, that's too fucking bonkers. We can't have it. So then Da Vinci had to like paint a new one. And Langdon's students were always amused to learn that Da Vinci <laughs> painted a second watered down version of this painting. Oh, they were amused. They were tickled. They were plucked. Oh, and we're even getting like details on where this second watered down version of the painting hangs now. So apparently it hangs at London's National Gallery. Okay. Okay. We're in a chase scene. Do- <sighs> so then Sophie's going up the Champs-Élysées, the Fifth Avenue of Paris. And Langdon's like, okay, well, what was behind the painting? And he doesn't give her the lecture on the painting, although you could tell he wants to. He's itching to tell her the story, but he, you know, restrains himself. And she goes, yeah, I'll show you once we're inside the embassy. Bitch, why do you think you're getting into the embassy? <laughs> I wouldn't assume that the US embassy are letting you in. <laughs> you just aided and abetted a criminal. The US embassy don't care about you, doll. You're a French citizen in France. You're fucked. <laughs> oh, I'll, let, I'll show you when we get into the embassy. Like, oh, doll. Oh, you got another thing coming, Soph. So then she's turning the smart car into the tree-lined diplomatic neighborhood. Okay. And she's like, also relaxing. She's like, oh, the embassy is less than a mile away. She was finally feeling like she could breathe normally again. They're really like confident that they're going to get away with this, aren't they? They're a whole mile away from the embassy and they're like, oh, we made it. So then Sophie's thinking about the key in her pocket and the memories of seeing it all those years ago, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, okay, well, now that I'm a security, a cybersecurity expert, I know that it's a laser tooled varying matrix. The key is impossible to duplicate. And rather than teeth that moved tumblers, it's a series of laser burned marks that get read by an electric eye. Like it's a fancy key. Okay. It's a fancy key. And she's thinking about like what the key will open. And she's like, well, I bet Robert will tell me because he like guessed the key's existence before, you know, I even told him about the key. And then she thinks about how there's a cross on the key. She thinks that the cross implied that it belonged to some kind of Christian organization. And yet she knew of no churches that used laser tooled varying matrix keys. And then she thinks, besides, my grandfather was no Christian, dot, dot, dot. Sophie had witnessed proof of that 10 years ago (gasps) because he had sex in an orgy. And really, what's more Christian than that? Like, show me a Christian that hasn't had an orgy. She is so obsessed with kink shaming this poor old man who just wanted to get his rocks off. And she thinks, ironically, it had been another key, key in italics, a far more normal one that had revealed his true nature to her. And then we have a whole flashback about how she unlocked the door to her granddad's house with a key. And she's like, oh my God, a key revealed his dark nature. And now I have a key in my hand. That's so ironic. No, Alanis, it's not. Ironically, she had used a key once 10 years ago. Like, yeah, okay, you've used a key before. That's not irony. So anyway, we're in the flashback. Oh, this detailed flashback. Every chapter has a fucking flashback. Okay, so she's, she's just stepped off the plane at Charles de Gaulle Airport and she's hailing a taxi home. Okay, bougie. Here I was catching the Metro like a chump. She's catching a taxi. Ooh la la. And she's thinking about how her granddad's going to be so excited to see her. She's coming back early to surprise him. See, that's where you, that's where you go wrong. I do not think you should surprise people like that. Like, and I see all these TikTok videos of people being like, here's me surprising my mum after three years being trapped in another country with COVID. And the mum's always like, oh my God, so good to have you back. But you bet she's thinking like, well, your room's a fucking mess. I haven't changed your sheets. You've really sprung this on me. I've had no time to prepare. I actually have dinner plans tonight, but now I've got to hang out with you, I guess. This is why you tell them. You give them a heads up. And she's like, oh, granddad's going to be so freaking excited. He's going to wet his pants when he sees me three days early. Like, and you know what? She was just studying in England. 
The granddad lives in France. Like, okay, hop, skip and a jump. If he really missed you, he could have seen you in like six hours. You've not been deployed to a war zone, Sophie. You're making such a big deal about your return. Maybe he doesn't care. And yeah, maybe he has plans, like a big old sex orgy. And she says, oh, she couldn't wait to tell him about all the encryption methods she was studying at school. Call him, put it in a postcard. So when she gets to their Paris home, she's like, oh my God, he's not here. That's crazy. She's like, well, if he's not here, he's usually at the Louvre. And then she's like, oh no, it's a Saturday afternoon. He seldom worked on weekends. On weekends, he usually went to his holiday home, which is a chateau in Normandy, which is north of Paris, just so you all know. And because his car's gone, she assumes that he's going to be in this house in Normandy because he despised city driving and he only owned that car to get to this chateau in Normandy. So she's like, well, that's enough evidence for me. Like, I assume 100% that he's going to be in that chateau in Normandy. You know what? Maybe call. Is there a landline connected to that chateau in Normandy? Because maybe call and give him the heads up and save you the trip. Because wouldn't you have egg on your face if you go all the way out to Normandy And then he's like, oh, I was just at the shops. Yeah, I just ducked out to the local supermarché just to pick up a few things. Why'd you go all the way out to Normandy, you dipshit? And because she was all cooked up in London, apparently, listen to this, Sophie, after months in the congestion of London, was eager for the smells of nature and to start her vacation right away. Okay, I don't want to travel brag, but I've also been to London and they have trees. They have parks. They have a river. You know, they have nature is what I'm trying to say here. But apparently Sophie's just been locked up in a, a, you know, an urban sprawl. Hasn't had a whiff of grass in months. So she's like, oh, I've got to escape. I've got to go to Normandy. And even though it's late at night, she's like, that's it. I'm going to Normandy. He's 100% there. And so then she borrows a friend's car. See, okay, there's so many logistical little things in this little flashback that are making me think this would never happen. And Dan Brown's just sweeping it under the rug, like in this tiny little sentence, just brushing it aside saying, borrowing a friend's car, Sophie drove north. Like, uh, who's, who's this friend? Who's this friend that's so cool and calm and collected being like, yeah, take my car. I don't need it. How did she get to this friend's car? Did she call up the friend and say, hey, come pick me up and then I'll drop you home and then I'll go on then north to Normandy? Or did she now catch a tra- a, a, another taxi? Did she catch another taxi to this friend's house? Just banking on them being there and not needing their car for the next like few days. What? How do you just borrow a friend's car? And to go all the way to Normandy, like, is she going to chip in for petrol? Uh, uh, Apparently she borrowed a friend's car. Uh, Okay. She borrowed a friend's car and she arrived just after 10 o'clock at her grandfather's retreat. And so she'd half expected to find her grandfather asleep at this hour, but she was excited to see that the house had lights on. So uh, again, why are you, why are you going to race up to Normandy and wake him up? It's late. With, oh, she's, oh. But also the chateau is filled with cars, fancy cars, you know, like Rolls Royces. And Sophie's like, what? My grandfather, the famous recluse having a party. That's crazy. And yet she's still like, must be some of my business. So she just continues on towards the house. And so she hurries to the front door. She's so eager to surprise him. But then when she gets there, she finds it locked. And she's like, what? That's crazy. And she goes around the back door. It's locked. No one's answering the door. She's like, this is weird. And she can't hear music. She can't hear voices. Nothing. She just hears the sounds of nature, which she hadn't heard for months living in London, which famously has no nature. So she hurries to the side of the house and she climbs up on a wood pile to look through the window. And inside she sees nothing. The entire first floor looked deserted and she's like, what's going on here? So then she runs to the woodshed and gets the spare key that her grandfather kept hidden under the kindling box. Ironically, she also now has a key in her hands, which, uh, but what are the odds? So then she lets herself in. Oh my God, this story. (sighs) So many steps for this part, but no, no steps were given to us when she magically got a car from her friend. We had to fill in those blanks, but here we're getting a, we're getting a bloody play by play, aren't we? So then she steps inside and then the control panel for the alarm is flashing. And she's like, what? He's setting the alarm. Why did he set an alarm if he's having a party? So then she deactivates the alarm. Okay. Good to know. Then she's going up, she's going down. She's looking everywhere in the house and she can't find people. But then she hears something. She hears a noise, like muffled voices coming from the floor beneath her. And she's like, what? (sighs) 
and the voices seem to be singing or chanting. And now she's frightened. And she, <laughs> and it says, almost more eerie than the sound itself was the realization that this house did not even have a basement. Well, clearly it does. Like, wh- the existence of a basement, why would that be almost as eerie as, as chanting voices coming from the floor? Oh, she's spooked. She's like, this building famously doesn't have a basement, even though, like, how do you know? Have you got the plans? Like, I'm sorry, did you build it? So then she's like playing the board game Clue or something and she's reaching behind a tapestry (laughs) and behind the tapestry, she finds a finger hold and she's like, oh my God, it's it's a secret door. So now she's going through secret doors of this chateau and the door moves and the voices get louder. And you know what? At this point, I would have said, you know what? Fuck this. I'll just go to my room and have a little nap. I'll, I'll write a note for Grandpere and I'll just see myself out. This is none of my business. None of my business. I'll take my friend's car and I'll drive around to the main town of Normandy and just get a hotel or something because I don't want no bar of this. So she's walking down this secret staircase, holding a breath, just freaked the fuck out. And then it takes her several seconds to process what she's seeing. Okay, so it's a room. All right, it's a room. There's 30 people or so in a circle in the center of the room. And Sophie's like, oh, I don't like this. I'm dreaming. I must be dreaming. And they're all wearing masks. Yeah. Okay. The women are wearing gowns and golden shoes. Okay. Chic. And they're also carrying golden orbs. And the men are wearing black tunics and their masks are black. And everyone in the circle is rocking back and forth chanting. And they're chanting towards something on the floor before them. Something she can't see just yet. Spoiler alert. It's a granddad banging someone. Again, turn around and go and live your life. But no, she, she continues to move forward. And then she catches a glimpse of what they're all looking at. And she's, oh, it's, it's horrific. She's staggering back. She's overtaken by nausea. She's like, oh, oh, disgusting. And she's running out of the room. And she fled that house. And she got back in her friend's car. And she drove all the way back to Paris. And then she packed up all of her stuff that's in her Paris house. And on the dining room table, she left a note saying, I was there, don't try to find me. And then she puts down that old spare key from the woodshed. Super dramatic. You know what? Maybe don't break up with your granddad with a note. Also, it was just an orgy doll. Calm down. He's allowed to have a sex life. You're the creepy one for intruding and being a little peeping Tom. There I said it. And so she's just like completely daydreaming while trying to, you know, hurry this guy into the US embassy and herself, apparently just full on daydreaming. And Langdon's like, Sophie, stop, stop. And so she breaks and she's like, what, what, what's going on? (laughs) She's like, sorry, I was miles away. And Langdon points and there, you know, in front of the embassy are a bunch of DCPJ police cars and they're sealing off the street. So you can't get to the embassy. And Langdon goes, I take it. The embassy is off limits this evening. It's like, yes. And now the police officers who are down the street, they're looking at this car that's just, you know, stopped suddenly. And they're like, that's suspicious. So then putting the smart car in reverse. Oh my God, the smart car. (sighs) She performed a composed three point turn and reversed her direction. Okay. Like, (sighs) what is this book? Do we need to know about a composed three point turn and a reverse? Like, okay. Like she drove away. Just say that like for fuck's sake. So then after her perfectly executed three-point turn, (laughs) the police cars who were just there, they're like, this is suspicious. Let's go investigate. So then they follow and she's like, ah, shit. And so she slams down the accelerator of the smart car. And that's the end of that chapter. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. God. Okay, and then we start chapter 33. And it says, Sophie's smart car tore through the diplomatic quarter. Okay. Stop saying smart car. And she takes a turn and now she's back on the massive thoroughfare of the Champs-Élysées, which is the Fifth Avenue of Paris. And Langdon, he's now freaking out. He's looking around, trying to scan for the police. And it says he suddenly wished he had not decided to run. And then it says in italics, you didn't, he reminded himself. And then it says Sophie had made the decision for him when she threw the GPS dot out the bathroom window. Okay, not really. Um, you could have just been like, whoa, that's crazy, Soph. Like, um, I'm actually going to go and have a chat to Fash about this because it's all a coincidence. He's got nothing substantial on me. You know what? Let's hash this out. I didn't kill Sonia. I'm, n- I'm not going to run because that's crazy. But no, she robbed him of that choice. Like, no, nah, nah. Back yourself and back your own decisions, Robert. Don't try and squirrel out of any culpability, okay? So then Sophie, she gets out the key. And ironically, she has used keys before in her life, but she gets out the key and she says, Robert, look at this. This is what was behind the Madonna of the rocks. And then Langdon feels a shiver of anticipation. What? He is such a nerd. You're fleeing the police and he's like, ooh, a key, a clue. And of course his first instincts are wrong because he thinks he's holding some sort of memorial spike that is stuck into the ground at a gravesite. Like what? No, of course it's not. And then he's like, oh no, but it's triangular. Um, okay, well that's weird. And she goes, it's a key. It's a laser cut key. And he's like, I guess he's probably a bit disappointed being like, I could have figured that out. It's like, no, you couldn't have. You first guessed that it was some sort of funeral gravesite sticky in the ground thingy. Like what the fuck are you thinking? Why, uh, why would that be hiding behind Madonna of the Rocks? Oh God, he's so dumb. And she says, it's a key. It's a laser cut key. Those hexagons are read by an electric eye. And he's like, a key? Langdon had never seen anything like it. And so now he's dubious. He's like, she's wrong. It's actually a gravesite memorial spike. Stupid Sophie. How can she not see that it's a memorial spike most commonly used in the 14th century? And then she has to say, like, look at the other side. He's not even looked at the other side yet. And there he felt his jaw drop (laughs) because there's the initials PS. Didn't we already know that? Weren't you all like, Hey, have you ever remembered seeing the, the PS symbol? And she was like, yeah, I have on a key. And now she's like, here's a key. And he's like, Oh my God, it's got PS on it. He says, Sophie, this is the seal I told you about. Oh my God. And she's like, yeah, like I told you I've seen the key before. Like it's a key. And Langdon's like, wow. I figured it out, even though Sophie's just there telling him what it is. And it says, it's high tech tooling and age old symbolism exuded an eerie fusion of ancient and modern worlds. Okay, well, that's the wankiest sentence I've ever read. And Sophie says, he told me the key opened a box where he kept many secrets. And Langdon's like, oh my God, he feels another chill. He's really getting off on this. He gets another chill and he's like, I wonder what secrets a man like Jacques Sunier would have kept. And he's so dumb. He says, the Priory existed for the sole purpose of protecting a secret, a secret of incredible power. Could this key have something to do with it? Um, possibly, most likely. And Langdon says, do you know what it opens? And Sophie's like, well, I was hoping you would actually. And she's like, oh damn, this guy. How'd I get lumped with this dud? And she says, it looks Christian. And Langdon, (laughs) he's like, you fool, of course it's not Christian. The head of this key was not the traditional long-stemmed Christian cross, but rather a square cross. 
And that cross predated Christianity by 1500 years, you big fucking dummy. It carried none of the Christian connotations. Okay. And then we get in a whole bloody backstory on the origin of the cross as a Roman torture device. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, God. And the etymology of it. Okay. Langdon was always surprised, always surprised, how few Christians who gazed upon the crucifix, and the crucifix is in, like, quote marks, like, scare quotes. Like, you can just say crucifix. It's not a bad word. Okay. He was always surprised how few Christians who gazed upon the crucifix realized their symbol's violent history was reflected in its very name. Cross and crucifix came from the Latin verb cruciare, to torture. Like, okay. Why is he always surprised by this? He's always surprised that everyday religious Christian people don't have an extensive knowledge of Latin. He's always surprised by that. Like I went to Catholic school and they pretty much always taught us that the crucifix was a symbol of, you know, Christ's sacrifice and love for people, blah, blah, fucking blah. They don't usually go and say, hey, you know what? (laughs) It's actually, it's actually about torture. (laughs) Isn't that nuts? Oh, but he's always surprised that they don't focus on that. Like, okay. And Langdon says, Sophie, it's an equal armed cross. So it's a peaceful cross. Okay because the square configuration of the cross makes it impractical for use in crucifixion. Like, okay. <sighs> all right. And then also the, the balance of the vertical and the horizontal is similar to the union of male and female somehow. Like, I, uh, sure it is, Robert, sure. And Sophie's like, we need to get off the road. We need a safe place to figure out what that key opens. And Langdon, he's like, oh, I wish I could go back to the Ritz. <laughs> he's just yearning for the comfort of his room at the Ritz. And they can't go and stay with Langdon's friends because Fash will get to them. They can't get to any of Sophie's friends because, you know, Fash will get to them. She says, my contacts are compromised and finding a hotel is no good because they all require identification. Oh, there goes that plan. Every hotel in Paris requires ID, apparently. You know what? You could just go to some of the dodgy ones. I'm sure there's a dodgy little hotel in Paris that'll be like, yeah, whatever. Six bucks a night. Do whatever you want. Um, and I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but you know, I just went to Paris and so my friends and I, we were looking at accommodation and we found this one place that was like, you know, quite, quite cheap and in an all right area, like sort of. And we were like, this could be good. And we looked at the, like the photos on the website and the promotional material for like the room just had a guy and like two girls just like sitting on a bed, like having a glass of champagne and being like, look at us, we're in Paris. We were like, oh, that's funny because we're one boy and two girls. Like, that's us, haha. Let's stay here. And we were like, great, perfect, let's book it. And then, so then I was like, gonna book it. And I was like, let's look at the other pictures. And then, like, the most bizarre gallery of photos popped up where you see them having like a pillow fight. And then they're like in the bath together. And then, like, so the two ladies are lying down in their lingerie and he's like reading the newspaper. And like resting things on their butts. And then there's one where, where like one of the girls is hiding behind the curtain and the other girl's opening the door of the room and the guy's on the bed like, it's not what it looks like, nothing to see here. And there are all these like pantomime photos of this thruple. And then I was starting to think, this is a sex hotel. That's why it's cheap. So all that's to say is, go to one of those sex hotels. Go to that hotel. I I doubt they would have asked for a passport. And so Robert says, well, how about we call the embassy? I can explain the situation and have the embassy send someone to meet us somewhere. And she's like, Robert, you're a bloody idiot. That's never going to work. The embassy's not going to send someone when you're out in France. As soon as you're not in the embassy, you're in France. And they can't go and retrieve a criminal from France and drag you to the embassy. That's not how it works. That's not how embassies work. And they're still on the Champs Elysees. Why they're on the busiest street in Paris when they're trying to hide, I'm not too sure. Like, take a side street perhaps and, you know, maybe park the car and just chill out for a second. But no, they're just like on the Champs Elysees, at the front of all of the elegant storefronts. And she says, How much cash do you have? And he goes, I got a few hundred bucks and a few euro. What's he doing with the hundreds of US dollars in his wallet when he's in Paris and a, and a couple of euro? Maybe go and get that currency converted into Euro, dude. So then she accelerates the smart car towards the Arc de Triomphe. And then we get a little history lesson on what that is. I'm just going to skip over it. 
And Sophie's like, we've lost them for the time being, but we won't last another five minutes if we stay in this car, (laughs) in this ridiculous, instantly recognisable car. And Langdon's like, we'll just steal another car. We're already criminals, toots. And then he goes and checks his watch. And you know, Langdon's got that dumb Mickey Mouse watch. It's a vintage collector's edition Mickey Mouse watch that he'd been given for his 10th birthday. And he still wears it. And he thinks it's like kooky. He's like, oh, I'm so kooky wearing my watch from when I was 10. But I'm like, how does that watch still fit you? Did your wrist or not bulk up with puberty? Like, he's still wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. Who would take this man seriously? This man teaches classes. He's, he's a Harvard professor and he's got a Mickey Mouse watch. Like what? And he says, although it's juvenile dial often drew odd looks. Yeah, I'm sure it would. Langdon had never owned any other watch. Never. Why? Because Disney animations had been his first introduction to the magic of form and color. (laughs) God, this is bullshit. And Mickey now served as Langdon's daily reminder to stay young at heart. What? Maybe grow up. How does that sound? Who is this kid? And then Sophie, she's like, oh, interesting watch. You know, she clocked it. You know, just while she's driving a smart car around Paris, she's like looking at his wrist for some reason. And she goes, interesting watch. And he says, long story. Well, it's, it's not a long story. You just told me the story in two sentences. And she goes, I imagine it would have to be. Well, no, it's not actually. Like we, we just covered it. So then they get to this darker industrial neighborhood and they're at the Gare Saint-Lazare, which is a train station. And even though it's like 3am or something, Langdon's like, ah, European train stations, they never sleep. Even at this hour, there's lots of taxis, people selling sandwiches and mineral water, kids with backpacks. (laughs) What? He's like, ah, European train stations, always awake and bustling. So then Sophie pulls a smart car behind a row of taxis. Okay, sure. And then she goes up to a taxi driver, speaks to them, hands them a big wad of cash. I don't know if that's Langdon's, you know, US dollars or if her, or if she has her own wad of cash, unclear. And then the taxi driver just like nods and then drives off without them. And Langdon's like, what? And Langdon's like, what did you do that for? And she goes, come on, we're buying two tickets on the next train out of Paris. And he's like, oh God, okay. He's like, now we're getting out of Paris. God, what have I gotten myself into? And that's the end of that chapter. So for chapter 34, we pause all momentum and we're back with Bishop Arangarossa, who's finally getting off the plane. Like, oh my God, 34 chapters in and all this guy's done is catch a flight. And he's at Leonardo da Vinci International Airport. Like, okay, sure. We already, we've been told five fucking times what airport he's going to. We get it. And so then the driver who collects him pulls up in a small, unimpressive sedan. And he's like, ugh. (laughs) He's like, I remember the days when Vatican transport cars were big luxury cars. And then he's like, oh, those days are gone. Like, okay, can you just calm down? As I said, you're not on the Metro. You're living the life of Riley, just relax. So now he's settling into the back of the car, even though he thinks, you know, it's a shitty little car. And he's settling in for the long drive to Castel Gandolfo which is the same place he went to five months ago on last year's trip to Rome, apparently, which was the longest night of his life. So now we're trying to build up suspense with whatever happened five months ago in Rome. God, it's a lot to keep track of. So there was this mysterious summons from the Vatican to come to Rome. And he's like, okay, yeah, sure. He just assumed it was a photo opportunity for the Pope and other Vatican officials to piggyback on Opus Dei's recent public success. Okay. The completion of their world headquarters in New York City. Recent. Again, I think we covered this in like week one or week two, but it wasn't that recent. You got to stop calling things recent. Also the hubris of this man to assume he's getting called to the Vatican so that the Pope could have a photo op with him just because they built a headquarters in New York. And it's like, the Pope lives in the Vatican. He doesn't need to piggyback off of your success with a PR opportunity, taking, taking photos with you. It's the other way around. And he's like, oh, the Pope probably wants to snap a pic with me. Like what? This Bishop Arangorosa really thinks he's Kim fucking Kardashian, doesn't he? And he... <sighs> He thinks it's because of the success of the HQ in New York, because Architectural Digest (laughs) had called the building a shining beacon of Catholicism. 
sublimely integrated with the modern landscape. Okay, Architectural Digest, did, did they tell you about how there's separate entrances for men and women? Did the journalists know that when they wrote that? Like, I don't know if they did. So backstory on backstory, apparently Aaron Garossa hates the new Pope because the new Pope's a little too freewheeling. He's not conservative enough for his liking. He's too liberal. The Pope was declaring that his mission was to update Catholicism into the third millennium. And Aaron Gross is like, ugh, gross. Ew. We don't want gay people to get married. We don't want women to have rights. Like, yuck. Please get back to the old ways. And apparently Aaron Garossa had been trying to convince the Pope that softening the church's laws was not only faithless and cowardly, but political suicide. You know, church attendance was so low now. Donations were drying up. If the church became more liberal, oh, it would just get worse. What? What are you basing that off of? I hate this Aaron Garossa. So then five months ago, so we're simultaneously, we're, we're going through the drive now, but also we're, we're reenacting the drive from five months ago. Okay, so he thought he was going to the Vatican, but then the shitty sedan actually went up a hill and he's like, where are we going? And the driver was like, oh, Castel Gandolfo, like, duh. And he's like, wow, the Pope's summer residence? That's crazy. I love that the Pope has a summer residence. What a cushy fucking job. <laughs> this fucking Pope. Don't get me started. All they do is pray all day and then they get a summer residence. Like, are you overworked? I'm sorry, but go work at an airport and then you'll know what hard work is like. Oh, he tires himself out with prayer all day that he needs to have a summer residence for months holiday at a time. Like, no, oh, stupid Pope. So in addition to being the Pope's summer residence, this place is also the Vatican Observatory. And, oh, Aaron Garossa hates that because, you know, science is evil. Doesn't understand why a church would be interested in astronomy. He's like, oh, that's gross. And so they, and he pulls up to the castle and he's like, wow, what a beautiful castle. But yuck, look at those two telescope domes. Ugh, they've ruined the architecture of the place. He hates science so much, hates it. And so then he gets out of the car and some priest comes over and he's like, oh, hey, I'm Father Mangano. I'm an astronomer here. And he's like, ugh, an astronomer priest, pull the other one. And so Aaron Garosa says to this poor priest, who's just trying to greet the guy, he says, tell me, when did the tail start wagging the dog? And the priest is like, what the, sorry, what, what, what the hell, what? And he just ignores it. He's like, yeah, I made my point. What point? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? He really thinks he did something with that one. He's like, oh, what a burn. I'm not even going to explain that burn because it's such a stinging burn. But it's like, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then he's thinking, oh, the Vatican has gone mad. The church just kept softening at every turn. And now they're looking at astronomy. Ugh. So then he's going towards the Vatican's astronomy library, which you know he hates. And apparently this library has more than 25,000 volumes, including rare works from Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, blah, blah, blah. And this is where the Pope has his private meetings, meetings that he'd prefer not to have within the walls of Vatican City. And so Aaron Garros is like, what's going on here? I thought this would just be a photo op. I thought the Pope just wanted to snap a pic of me, get a selfie because of my great new building in New York. But, oh. Now I've got to go to a place with telescopes in it. This is bullshit. And so then it gets a bit vague, but it says it was not until an hour later as he staggered from the meeting that the devastating implications settled in. Six months from now, God help us. And we don't actually know what the hell that's all about. But now, five months later, okay, we're back in the present. So something's going to happen in a month. Okay. And now his, his hands are clenching while he's in this shitty little sedan on his way up to the same bloody astronomical library or whatever the fuck it is. And he's thinking like, why hasn't the teacher called me? Silas should have the keystone by now. He's stressing out. And so he just meditates on his ring. He's staring at the amethyst in his ring and he reminds himself that the ring was a symbol of power far less than that which he would soon attain. And that's the end of that chapter. What a shitty little chapter that was. Okay, so he hopped off the plane at Da Vinci Airport with a dream and a cardigan and he went up to an observatory. Okay, end of chapter. Thrilling. Look to his right and he sees the Colosseum. And then the sedan man turned on the radio and the Jay-Z song was on and the Jay-Z song was on. So he just like put his hands up. So then we start chapter 35. We're in the train station and apparently this train station looks like every other train station in Europe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> apparently all train stations in Europe look the same. Like, okay, thanks Dan Brown. 
It's a gaping indoor-outdoor cavern, <laughs> what? Dotted with the usual suspects. Homeless men holding cardboard signs, collections of bleary-eyed college kids sleeping on backpacks and zoning out to their portable MP3 players. <laughs> and clusters of blue-clad baggage porters smoking cigarettes. Okay, I don't know about that. Every train station looks the same and they all have those same features. Okay, no. So then they're looking at the departure board, which is also one of the old timey ones that go like tick, 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 like not electronic. You know what I mean? Anyway, so they see there's one going to Lyon in seven minutes at 3.06 a.m. And Sophie says, I wish it left sooner, but it'll have to do. And Langdon's like, sooner? And he looks at his Mickey Mouse watch his stupid bloody watch. And it says 2.59 AM. And he's like, it leaves in seven minutes and we haven't even gotten our tickets yet. What does she mean sooner? And so she goes, go buy us tickets with your credit card. And he goes, but credit cards, they can be traced. And she says, exactly. And he still hasn't figured it out yet that this is just like a ploy. He's like, well, I better hurry if we're going to make this train. Like what? You're not going to make the train, Robert. So using his visa card. Okay. Glad to know it's a visa. Okay. He purchased two coach tickets to Lyon. Not even first class. What a cheapskate. And then he hands them to Sophie and he's like, all right, well, we better, we better get to the platform. And she's like, come on. (laughs) And then they leave the train station. They go to a side exit and go out into this little side street and there's the taxi. So, okay. Robert Langdon, Professor Langdon, one of the greatest minds of our world. He... He thought she just gave a stack of cash to the taxi driver to, to what, throw the police off their scent? Like, how would that work? And then, like, thought that they'd go and actually catch this train that he just purchased with his credit card. Did he forget about the taxi driver? He's like, whoa, the taxi driver from earlier. They're in this side street. Like, what? Yes. We're not going to Lyon. That's crazy. What? He's the slowest motherfucker. And I still don't think he's figured it out yet. So then Sophie gets into the car. He's like, well, I better get into the taxi too. And then the taxi pulls away from the station and Sophie takes out the newly purchased train tickets and tears them up. And Langdon sighed and thinks, $70 well spent. Like, what? You, you were never going to catch that train, Robert. He's like, oh, $70. That's $70 I'll never see again. You're on the run for your life, mate. I think you can swing the 70 bucks to solve the Da Vinci code. Like, uh, uh, $70 well spent. Poor bastard. So Sophie, she just tells the cab driver, like, get us out of the city. So while he's driving, Langdon's looking at the key again. And he's trying to find other markings, but he can't figure it out. And he goes, it doesn't make sense. She's like, yeah, what? And he says that your grandfather would go to so much trouble to give you a key that you wouldn't know what to do with. And she's like, yeah, I know, crazy, right? And then he's like, wait a minute. And he thinks something's been on the key. Like, he's like, has this key been cleaned recently? Because it smells like robbing alcohol. And she's like, how the fuck would I know? And then he's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yes, somebody polished this with cleaner. And then he's sniffing the key and he's like, oh, it's stronger on the other side. And he's like, yep, someone cleaned the key. And she's like, okay, great. And then he's like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And she's like, what? And he's like, did you look at the key before you put it in your pocket when you were in the Louvre? And she's like, no. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. And she's like, oh my God, you are killing me. And he goes, do you still have the black light? And she's like, and so then she gets out the black light. And so then he shines the UV pen light over the key and he's like, oh, would you look at that? And he goes, well, I guess we know what the alcohol smell was. And she's like, oh, amazed. She stared in amazement at the purple writing on the back of the key. Okay, so he wrote on the key in that invisible ink, you know, the invisible ink that every art historian carries with them at all times. Okay, it says 24 Rue Haxo. Okay. All right, we can all figure out that that's an address, right? But no, so then we have, then we have rather absurdly a line of italics indicating it's Sophie's inner monologue. I thought we were like constricted to Langdon's inner monologue when we're in a chapter that's sort of narrated by him, like, well, in his POV, but no. So now, so now in italics, she's saying an address. My grandfather wrote down an address. Like, yeah, but like, since when are you, since when are you speaking to us? Since when do we have that insight into your mind's workings? But okay. 
She could have just said that out loud. I don't know why that had to be an inner monologue, but. <sighs> so then Langdon's like, where's this? And she's like, I don't fucking know. What am I, Dan Brown? I don't know every address. And so then she asked the taxi driver, like, where's Rue Haxo? And he's like, yeah, I know it. Uh, fastest route is through this dodgy street. That all good? And she's like, oh God, not the dodgy street. Every town, every city has a dodgy street. Well, apparently the Bois de Boulogne is a dodgy street in Paris. And she's like, oh, this is going to be awkward for our American visitor, but all right, let's go down the dodgy street to get to the Rue Haxo. And she's thinking, what will we possibly find at 24 Rue Haxo? A church? Some kind of priory headquarters? God, I wish they could just Google it. Maybe ask the taxi driver. I don't know. But then her mind fills again with images of the secret ritual she had witnessed in the basement. Oh, that terrible, terrible ritual she witnessed. You know, when, which she also accessed using a key, ironically. And she's like, oh, Robert, I have a lot to tell you. But first, I want you to tell me everything you know about this Priory of Scion. And that's the end of the chapter. Jeez Louise. I feel like I've been talking forever, so let's end it. Um, but also, <laughs> I may as well just slip in a little plug for the Patreon. If you're into the Patreon, I'm recapping the Maze Runner over there. New bonus episodes every Friday. You can get access for $3 a month. And you also can access all of the old content, which is Fifty Shades Darker, Insurgent, 365 Days, all accessible once you become a patron. So that's patreon.com slash breaking down bad books. Leave a rating, leave a review, fill your boots, and I'll see you next week for more of the fucking Da Vinci Code. Okay, bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.